Shots rang out this afternoon in Kansas City, Missouri, near where the parade was being held for the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs. Police say multiple people are being treated for injuries and two people with firearms are now in custody. Today is Wednesday, February 14th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Officials are calling it a fluid situation. We'll take you to Kansas City. New York Democrat Tom Suozzi has prevailed in yesterday's special election to replace disgraced Republican Congressman George Santos. We won this race because we addressed the issues and we found a way to bind our division. Swazi's victory leaves the GOP with a slimmer two-vote majority in the House. And the number of undocumented migrants crossing into the U.S. from Mexico plummeted last month. We'll find out why. It's 401. Live from NPR News in New York City, I'm Duahli Saikautau. FBI Director Christopher Wray is in Israel today for an unannounced visit. He met with Israeli officials for talks about threats facing both countries. More on this story from NPR's Ryan Lucas. The FBI says Wray's meeting with Israeli intelligence and law enforcement officials focused on current and future threats, and that Wray reiterated the FBI's support to Israel following the October 7th Hamas attacks. In a statement, Ray said the Bureau's close partnership with its Israeli counterparts helped the FBI move quickly in response to the attacks. Ray also met with the FBI legal attache office in Tel Aviv to thank agents and staff there for their work providing services to U.S. victims of the Hamas assault and their families. The Bureau says it will continue to respond to Israeli government requests for FBI support. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. In Kansas City, Missouri, police there say shots were fired near Union Station just following an historic celebration of the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl win. At this hour, at least 10 people have been injured, but the situation is fluid and the numbers may change. A police spokesman says two armed people have been taken into custody. Democrats flipped a Republican seat in a special election in New York last night. It was to replace ousted Congressman George Santos. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports border security was a leading issue. Democrat Tom Suozzi told supporters on Long Island the voters are focused on immigration and the economy and want lawmakers to work on bipartisan solutions. It's time to move beyond the petty partisan bickering and the finger pointing. It's time to focus on how to solve the problems. The former three-term House member defeated Republican Nassau County legislator Mozzie Pillup and criticized her for opposing the bipartisan Senate border bill. Moderate suburban voters in this district say the influx of migrants into New York City is impacting the local economy and jobs. Swazi's strategy could be a model for other swing races in November. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. Uber and Lyft drivers are holding strikes and protests across the country today. NPR's Derek Kerr reports. Ride-hail drivers say their wages have plummeted over the last couple of years after Uber and Lyft changed the way they pay drivers. Instead of paying by mileage and time, earnings are now calculated with an algorithm. Drivers say their goal is to draw attention to poor working conditions and encourage more regulation of the industry. They say the companies can take up to 80% of their fares and are demanding a living wage and more safety features. Thousands of drivers are participating in the strike, which is taking place in dozens of cities across the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. Uber and Lyft spokespeople say these strikes haven't had a meaningful impact on wait times. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts officials say they're stepping up oversight of embattled steward health care. They also say they're bracing for the potential closure of any of the nine hospitals in the state owned by the for-profit company. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey has more. A steward says financial challenges are jeopardizing its ability to provide services. Now, State Public Health Commissioner Robbie Goldstein says his department is expanding daily site visits at steward hospitals to make sure they're giving safe care to patients. At this time, we do not know what the future of steward hospitals will be. There will need to be some reorganization, reconfiguration, transition, and potential closures for steward hospitals and the health care they deliver. Any potential closures would add stress to the state's health care system at a time when patients already face long waits for care. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. Today, the Boston City Council set aside a vote on a resolution that calls for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Councillor Ben Weber introduced the measure, but he withdrew it this afternoon, saying it came to his attention that the language in it may cause more division. So out of respect to my council colleagues, and members of the Boston community, I withdraw this resolution today to have further conversations. This process has only reinforced my belief that dialogue is the only way forward for peace for Israelis and Palestinians and to show support for members of our community who are suffering. An effort to pass a ceasefire resolution last October led to a tense debate in the council. It never got a vote. City councils in Cambridge, Somerville, and Medford have all approved ceasefire resolutions. Two more veteran Democratic lawmakers on Beacon Hill say they plan to retire. Representative Paul Schmidt of Westport said yesterday he will not seek a ninth term this fall. State Senator Mark Pacheco of Taunton also announced his retirement. Pacheco is the longest-serving member of the state Senate. So far, two senators and nine state representatives have decided not to run for re-election or seek a different office. In the forecast, sure is windy out there right now and cold. 31 degrees now, but feeling a lot chillier. Tonight, high winds keep coming. Clear skies, about 22 for a low. Then tomorrow, sunshine in the morning. Clouds eventually drift in. A few flurries possible during the day. Temperatures in the upper 30s tomorrow. Again, 31 degrees now in Boston at 406. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. In a few minutes, we'll look at Biden administration concerns that Israel is misusing American weapons in its war with Hamas. We will have the latest from the State Department. But first, we turn to the southern border, where there's been a historic increase in migrants attempting to enter the U.S. But there has been a new shift in the story. U.S. Customs and Border Protection is reporting that the number of undocumented migrants crossing into the U.S. dropped by 50 percent in January. Joining us now is NPR immigration correspondent Jasmine Garst. Hi there. Hi. So Jasmine, start if you can by just breaking down these numbers for us. 
Yeah, this is a significant drop. In December, authorities encountered over 249,000 migrants crossing the border without papers. That's a record number. In January, they encountered over 124,000. Within that, the Tucson sector of Arizona remains the busiest entry area for undocumented crossings, followed by Del Rio, Texas. I mean, a 50% drop sounds quite significant. Do you have any indication as to why that has been happening? Well, border crossings are very cyclical, and January tends to be a slow month. You know, bad weather. But also in the last few months, there's been so much talk about increasing border enforcement. Uh, Doris Meissner from the Migration Policy Institute says that also led to the dip. It's also a reflection of the debate that's been taking place in the United States, the sense that border enforcement is going to tighten. And so people tried to get in in much larger numbers in December. It wasn't just the debates, though. Meissner said that when the Biden administration restarted deportation flights back to Venezuela late last year, that sent a message. Um, and also since December, the Mexican National Guard has intensified its crackdown on migrants heading north. Jasmine, what happens at the border, of course, reverberates in cities across the United States. Have New York, Denver, Chicago felt the impact of this decrease that we're talking about? Yes, definitely. I mean, New York City, which has received over 170,000 migrants in the last two years or so, has seen a plunge in migrants going into the city's care. And city officials say this is related to the decrease at the border. Um, they've said they welcome the reprieve. New York officials have been saying for a long time they're overwhelmed. OK, push us forward here. What comes next? Do we expect this dip to keep on going? Well, experts say this is going to go up again. That cycle is going to continue. I spoke to Adam Isaacson today from the Washington office on Latin America about that. People are fleeing really miserable conditions. There is really nothing we can do at the borderline or along the migrant route that is going to be more miserable than what people are already experiencing in the places they're fleeing. So this is something we keep hearing. If the forces that drive migration continue, so will migration. Right. And last week here in Washington, we saw the collapse of a border deal, which would have been a major doubling down on U.S. border enforcement. Have there been any suggested changes since that effort failed? No, quite the opposite. So this morning, the Washington Post reported that uh, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement has drafted plans to release thousands of immigrants and slash its capacity to hold detainees. NPR reached out to Homeland Security, who told us they need more resources and that, quote, without adequate funding, the department will have to reprogram or pull resources from other efforts. Jasmine, sounds like they're, they're talking about cuts. Is that something we can expect to see happen? No concrete cuts. And just to be clear, this isn't entirely new uh, for several administrations. Going back to George W. Bush, uh, this has been a practice. It's what critics call catch and release. That's NPR's Jasmine Garst. Thank you. Thank you.
The Biden administration has been raising concerns with Israel about the high civilian death toll in Gaza, and now officials are looking into several of the deadliest airstrikes to see if Israel is misusing American weapons. But the administration has been reluctant to use its military aid as leverage. NPR's Michelle Kellerman is here to explain all this. Hey, Michelle. Hi there, Mary Louise. First of all, this is an official investigation. Who's running it? Yeah, well, the State Department has something called the Civilian Harm Incident Response Guidelines, which is kind of an internal reporting system for when U.S. weapons are used in high casualty attacks. Here's how State Department spokesman Matthew Miller describes it. That process is not intended to function as a rapid response mechanism. Rather, it is designed to systematically assess civilian harm incidents and develop appropriate policy responses to reduce the risk of such incidents occurring in the future and to drive partners to conduct military operations in accordance with international humanitarian law. Now, he wouldn't speak to specific incidents that are part of this formal review, but we do know that the State Department has been looking into the alleged use of white phosphorus in Lebanon and that it's been looking into some of the deadliest attacks in Gaza. The Wall Street Journal says that includes a 2,000-pound bomb dropped on a refugee camp last October there. So here's my question. If the State Department determines that Israel has, in fact, misused American weapons, are there consequences for Israel? Well, there could be aid cutoffs, but, you know, you heard Miller say that this is not a rapid response mechanism, so I would not expect the U.S. to come to any quick conclusions about that or cut off aid. And that worries Josh Paul. He quit the State Department last year because of the war in Gaza. He had worked on you know, military aid packages, including those to Israel. Take a listen to how he responded to the news that the U.S. is looking into some of these incidents. The time for action is now. Uh, It is not in six months or a year from now when we are looking at a new tranche of requests from Israel. What we need is to ensure that U.S. weapons are not being used to kill thousands of civilians. And this is a question we already know the answer to. So I would say, you know, while it is good that the department is applying some of its tools to look at these questions, The answers are obvious, and the time for action is now. And so far, Paul says the Biden administration has not put any real conditions on military aid to Israel. And why not? You know, the the U.S. is focused now on getting another pause in the fighting in exchange for the release of hostages held by Hamas. And the argument that I often hear over here at the State Department is that the pressure should be on Hamas, not on Israel right now. U.S. officials also often say that Hamas has been using civilians as human shields, and that's one of the reasons why there is such a high civilian death toll in Gaza. Now, diplomats do raise specific cases directly with Israeli authorities, and they do press Israelis to limit civilian casualties, but they don't seem to want to use aid as leverage with Israel at this point. What about members of Congress? Because we have been hearing voices over on Capitol Hill uh, pushing back against the Biden administration on this. Well, certainly some Democrats have. Chris Van Hollen, who's from Maryland, says that Benjamin Netanyahu's government in Israel has mostly ignored U.S. calls to protect civilians in Gaza, and he does think it's time for the U.S. to do something. Um, The next test, Mary Louise is what happens in Rafah near Gaza's border with Egypt. Israel says there are a few Hamas battalions there, but there's also more than a million Palestinians sheltering in Rafah. And the Biden administration has told Israel that it needs a real plan to protect civilians before any ground offensive. So far, U.S. officials say there's no credible plan. Uh, is NPR's Michelle Kellerman reporting from the State Department. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. 
Residents of Portland, Maine woke up today, Valentine's Day, to see their city covered in hearts. There were white paper um, with red hearts all over town. Pretty much every window in, in town, um, all the businesses uh, had hearts on them. That is Sierra Farman. And this is not unusual in Portland. The red heart on white paper is a well-known local symbol, one that has mysteriously appeared around town every Valentine's Day for more than 45 years. The man who started the tradition was Sierra's father, Kevin Farman. He became known as the Valentine's Day Bandit. Kevin and his collaborators worked anonymously, hanging hearts throughout the late night and early morning before Valentine's Day every year. The idea that there's someone anonymously doing these hearts over the years as a love letter to the, the city is really beautiful and it's all, it's all about generosity and spreading kindness and love and positivity. Here's the twist. Kevin died last April, and his family and friends decided to reveal his identity as the bandit. This is the first Valentine's Day in Portland since his death. Sierra says the tradition lives on. It's really become a, a symbol of Portland and of Maine and our community. We, I mean, I've seen people with tattoos of it now. It's really special to Portland. So who is the new bandit, you may be wondering? Sierra says the Valentine's Day bandit isn't just one person. Her father didn't work alone, and the tradition evolved over the years to become a community-wide effort. One thing has stayed the same, though, the bandit's anonymity. The beauty of it is that it is uh, anonymous, and it's not about recognition. If someone was saying, I'm spreading love around town, like, give me credit for it. That feeds into the commercialization that people hate about Valentine's Day. It shouldn't be about that. That's not what love is about. It's about uplifting people. That is Portland, Maine resident Sierra Farman remembering her father, Kevin Farman, also known as the Valentine's Day Bandit. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, the story of an unlikely friendship between a woman in grief in Gaza and the Irish graffiti artist who painted her. WBUR supporters include Lesley University. Learn from mental health and wellness experts at Lesley University and prepare to make a difference. Learn more at lesley.edu. And Endless Energy helping Massachusetts residents understand their options when faced with aging or inefficient heating systems. Learn how to heat smart at GoEndlessEnergy.com. Today's stocks picked up territory. The Dow rose four-tenths of a percent, S&P gained nearly a full percent, and the Nasdaq grew by one and three-tenths of a percent. A regional biotech incubator in southeastern Massachusetts is getting a financial boost. The Mansfield Bio Incubator is getting an $800,000 grant from the Healy administration. The organization says the grant will help the incubator's companies make advances in cell and gene therapies and in biomanufacturing. The forecast is coming up.
WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres. Starts February 22nd. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Pretty beautiful out there right now. Still windy, though, and it should be windy overnight tonight. Clear skies, temperatures about the low 20s, but feeling a lot colder. Tomorrow, partly sunny early. Clouds for the afternoon up around 38 degrees. Could have a few flurries tomorrow into early Friday, then sunshine pretty much all day on Friday, close to 40 degrees. 31 now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 421. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows, available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Eight points. That is all Iowa Hawkeye Caitlin Clark needs to score tomorrow night against Michigan, and she will be the new women's NCAA all-time scoring leader. Her success is leading to record crowds and ratings for women's basketball. It's dubbed the Caitlin Clark effect. Our co-host Scott Detrow checked out the phenomenon in person recently when Iowa visited the University of Maryland. Sally McGovern and Karen Sotes have traveled from Pennsylvania and paid a lot of money to see Caitlin Clark in person. We got them for off a student. They were $9 seats and I think we paid $2.50 a piece. We didn't care. We didn't care. We didn't care. And we got a steal. All right. Rock on. Come on in. Do it again. Thank you so much. All right, it's before game time, and the arena here in Maryland is already packed. We are standing here courtside watching Caitlin Clark and her teammates warm up. She just drained a three from the corner in, in warm-ups. Walking into the arena, and this felt to me like a professional sports playoff game. You had parking lots full, you had people directing traffic, you had people trying to scalp tickets outside. As we walk around before tip-off, we see three women wearing matching hats. It's really why we're here. <laughs> we can't tell you exactly what they read. The FCC would get annoyed. Something to the effect of Caitlin Leaping Clark. So we're all from New York, Philly, and Maryland, and so we decided last year, literally when they made it deep into the playoffs, that we were going to come and see them play. Megan McDonald and her college lacrosse teammates, Karen and Kristen, got their tickets early enough, they say with self-satisfaction, that they avoided all the scalper prices. about the fact that it's like, like like nearly $1,500 for tickets yeah, for tonight. Love it. Absolutely. Yeah. Give it to the girls. 1500 Yeah, Meg, it's the same as the yeah. EFC What's championship game now? last weekend. No, absolutely. The women are getting the, the recognition they deserve. As with many others across the country, Clark first hit their radar during last year's NCAA tournament run, when she led her team to the finals but lost. This is their first time seeing her in person. First so what, what are you most excited to see? Uh, like, I want to see her shoot from the logo. I would love like a 50 plus point game. Uh, break some records. I know she's like a thousand points or hundred yeah. points off the record. So whether it's this game or the next game, probably the next game. Uh, love her to break that record. 
game gets underway, and on the very first play, Clark hits a three-point. It's Maryland, though, who establishes an early lead. And that energizes the Maryland fans, who are trying to drown out all the Iowa and Clark supporters invading their home arena. Let's go, Turks! Let's Clark's go, the ball down the court. You just hear her getting booed. I think that counts as a logo shot. That was what, 10, 10 feet? That's five, 10 feet, that's one. That's, that's like, that's the eight to 10 feet out. Yeah. yeah, that was a deep, deep three-point shot. Her third three-pointer of the first quarter. Clark is facing the same dynamics that superstars often do when they play on the road. The fans are here to see her. Maryland fans are also making a point to boo her. Every time she sets up for a shot in front of the Maryland student section, crowd taunts her. I ask whether all of this affects her approach or her play. Honestly, like, not really. I mean, I take it in everywhere I go, and I think I'm just very grateful. And Everywhere she goes, it's sellout after sellout, with all eyes on Clark. It is what it is. It's basketball. You know, one game is not going to make or break our season, and I just find a calming presence and, like, being around my teammates and um, having fun playing this game. And, Kristen Meyer was Clark's high school coach, a Dolan Catholic in West Des Moines. She says ever since she first saw Clark play as a middle schooler, she knew Clark was special. Looking for an example, she starts talking about practice. We had to bring in different high school guys who were a little bit stronger, a little bit taller, and who could guard her more. You know, she'd score a basket, talk a little trash, or they'd get a stop and they'd talk a little trash, all in fun. Clark's competitiveness made headlines last year. She and LSU star Angel Reese went back and forth in the NCAA championship, taunting each other. Even with that, longtime WNBA star Maya Moore says she is impressed by Clark's mindset amid all of the hype and attention. You know, it's not an individual sport where she is individually good, but she's doing all this on a team, which is, I think, even harder to do, right? To go out and find your place within a group while also becoming the best that you can be. Reports I've now started the third quarter. Iowa started off with the ball, and again, they're up 52 to 38. Caitlin Clark has scored a little less than half of the team's points so far, and I guess she's gotten about a quarter of the way at this point toward that all-time record. She was a little more than 100 points short, 23 points already in this game. Clark's scoring pace slows down a bit in the second half, and Maryland claws its way back into the game, even taking the lead at a few points. Then, Clark starts to hit a groove again. She starts making more three-pointers, and Maryland comes out deep to guard her more closely. So Clark starts finding her teammates with her other signature play, accurate long-range passes, the kind you usually see from football quarterbacks. She is such a great passer that she's going to find, you know, that teammate for an easy look, you know, if you, if you gear on her too much. But then if you don't, she's going to score. Jackie Stiles knows basketball. She's in the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. Playing for Southwest Missouri State University in the late 90s and early 2000s, she broke the all-time women's scoring record and held it for nearly two decades. She's been watching closely this season. Uh, man, I have just enjoyed Kaylin Clark's journey. As Clark has marched toward the record, Styles has thought back on all of the pressure she faced as she tried to break it years ago. Styles has also reflected on how much more power and self-determination college athletes have now that the NCAA allows them to get a piece of the millions of dollars that college sports generate. I was the fourth pick in the WNBA draft, and 
At that time, we went to a, a pay scale and the top four got the highest salary, which was 55000 you know. So, you know, she's more than likely going to make more as a college athlete. These new dynamics will leave Clark with an interesting choice after this season. She can go to the WNBA, where she'd almost certainly be the number one draft pick, or due to extended eligibility dating back to the lost COVID season, she could play another year at Iowa and maybe earn more money in college than she could as a pro. Mary Jo Kane, a professor at the University of Minnesota, rattles off all of the major companies who already have deals with Clark. Gatorade and Nike, obviously, in the sports world. But beyond that, H&R Block, Buick, Goldman Sachs. And she is the first ever college athlete, male or female, to sign with the sports marketing behemoth State Farm. So um, Caitlin Omics has just been, again, a tsunami of exposure. Against Maryland, Clark and Iowa pull away in the fourth quarter and end up with what looks, on the scoreboard at least, like an easy win. Late in the night, Iowa fans huddle in the cold in the parking lot outside the arena, hoping for a glimpse of Clark as she and the Hawkeyes leave on the bus. Walking through the crowd, I see little kids, girls and boys, pressed against the barrier, holding signs with Clark's name on it cheering Caitlin, Caitlin. These crowds will be watching as Clark's career continues into the upcoming NCAA tournament and whatever comes next. Scott Detrow, NPR News, College Park, Maryland. You're listening to All Things Considered. And still to come on WBUR's All Things Considered, today marks six years since the mass shooting in Parkland, Florida. Now activists are using artificial intelligence to recreate victims' voices to speak out against gun violence. That's coming up at 4.55. Boston Celtics host the Brooklyn Nets tonight. The Seas won when the teams met just last night in New York. Tip-off is at 7.30 tonight. Boston's professional women's hockey team also plays tonight. They'll take on Toronto at the Sanka Center in Lowell. And in a sure sign of spring, pitchers and catchers had their first workout today at the Red Sox Spring Training Facility in Florida. WBUR supporters include H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Harry Christophers returns to lead H&H as Conductor Laureate next weekend at Symphony Hall. Visit HandelandHaydn.org. And Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. You follow the news every day on WBUR. But how well do you really know the news? It's time to play the puzzle. One across, digital trash. Five letters south of Ecuador. Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Authorities say shots were fired near Union Station in Kansas City, Missouri, at the conclusion of a celebration for the Kansas City Chiefs' Super Bowl win. Police say at least 10 people were hurt and two suspects are in custody. Former Congressman Tom Suozzi of New York is headed back to Washington. The Democrat won a special election to replace ousted Republican George Santos in a race that featured several issues, including abortion rights, immigration and crime. 
Beyond that, Democrats outspent the GOP candidate, Mozzie Pillip, and hammered her on her personal financial issues. NPR's Domenico Montanaro reports. Republicans have been looking for any message to resonate in the suburbs. Education, crime, immigration. Nothing is quite stuck. That's not to say immigration isn't a salient issue for Republicans. It's been a hot-button one in New York, and polls show people trust Republicans more on immigration. But Swazi's win will give Democrats confidence that they can parry the immigration attacks. He was able to tack toward the middle and do what Democrats have done in swing district after swing district in the age of Trump, run as a moderate adult in the room willing to compromise. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, New York. At a meeting today of NATO defense ministers in Brussels, the alliance's secretary general praised 18 member countries that are on track to reach NATO defense spending targets. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said the number of member states reaching the 2% of GDP target on defense spending is a six-fold increase from a decade ago when only three members met that target. His remarks come in the wake of comments from former U.S. President Donald Trump, who warned he would not protect countries failing to meet the spending target if they're attacked. NPR's Rob Schmitz reporting. On Wall Street, the Dow gained 151 points at 38,424. The S&P 500 gained 47, closing again above 5,000. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Voters in Milton are going to the polls today. They're deciding whether to accept a major zoning change the state mandated. It's designed to bring new development to the town. WBUR Simone Rios reports that Milton residents are largely divided on the matter. A new state law requires places served by the MBTA to allow more home construction. Milton officials say the zoning change would allow for as many as 2,600 new units, though it's more likely there'd be 800 to 1,000 in current conditions. Voting against the change, Mark Vonnegut says he wants more affordable housing, but doesn't think the zoning proposal is the way to get there. This is going to license them to put up a bazillion luxury condos and high You know, high-density, low-quality, high-end housing costs. Supporters of the change say it would allow more people to enjoy a suburban community that borders Boston. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Newton's mayor is just now talking publicly about an emergency family shelter that's been running in her city since November. Mayor Ruthann Fuller says she initially kept the location inside a church private to protect the family staying there, but she announced the location this week in response to rumors about violence at the shelter. Our Lady Help of Christians Parish can host up to 30 families at the site. Some local medical experts are reacting to the reported new COVID guidelines expected from the CDC. The Washington Post reports the agency may soon drop its guidance that people with COVID isolate for five days. Dr. Shira Derone is the chief infection control officer at Tufts Medical Center. She told WBUR's Radio Boston that she agrees with a potential new policy and says it should not make the spread of COVID worse. It's not that I think that, you know, this new guideline is necessarily scientifically based if you use contagiousness as your uh, metric. It's that this new guideline aligns our approach to COVID with our approach to other respiratory viruses, all of which can have a contagious phase that extends beyond the period of acute illness. The Massachusetts Medical Society says it's waiting for more information. It's asking people to follow current guidelines and to get vaccinated. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bridgewater State University. Ranked 18th in Massachusetts on the Wall Street Journal's 2024 Best Colleges in America list. Bridgew.edu.
Pretty chilly right now, 30 degrees, but feeling a lot colder because of the stiff wind today. Tonight, gusts could reach 33 miles an hour. Still clear tonight. And for tomorrow, clouds collect during the day. Some random snow flurries tomorrow as well. Should be in the upper 30s. This is WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks, at progressivecommercial.com. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Voters in New York have replaced expelled Republican Congressman George Santos with a Democrat. Former Representative Tom Suozzi will return to the House. He's previously served three terms there. And yesterday he won a special election after a campaign that was dominated by immigration. Let's recap and look ahead now with Bridget Bergen of member station WNYC. So Bridget, this congressional district. It's on Long Island in outer New York City, and that is far away from the southern border. And yet immigration was the dominant issue in this race. Tell us why. Well, it's largely because it's the New York City media market. And for over a year, it has been a top story. The city has been trying to house and support thousands of migrants sent to the state by Texas Governor Greg Abbott. And it's become a real flashpoint between local leaders here who are Democrats and the Biden administration. Republicans seized on this issue. They tried to link Swazi to President Biden. Ad Impact, which tracks political ad spending, found the GOP talked about immigration more than any other issue. And I mean, just yesterday, as this election was wrapping up, the Republican-led House of Representatives here in Washington impeached Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas by one vote over border security. How did Swazi there in New York talk about this issue? So what he did was really agree that it was a problem. But instead of letting his opponent define the issue, he talked about working across the aisle to address it. And he said he would have supported that bipartisan deal that came out of the U.S. Senate last week and really knocked Republicans who spiked the plan because the GOP presidential frontrunner Donald Trump opposed it. Last night, Swazi said he's committed to overcoming these divisions. The whole campaign has been about how do we communicate to people that we can be better if we work together to try and solve the problems we face in our country. And that's the message. That's the message that resonated with the people in this campaign. And now he brings that message to Congress and other suburban swing districts in New York and across the country. And with this victory, the slim Republican majority in the House is even slimmer. Are Democrats talking about this race as a blueprint for how to campaign on immigration in November? Yes, some absolutely are. Take uh, New York Governor Kathy Hochul, who Swazi actually challenged unsuccessfully in 2022. She said today that Swazi was right to call out New York Republicans for opposing that bipartisan border deal. Tom Swazi could point out the hypocrisy, the shocking hypocrisy of Republicans in our own state to do what they have the power to do, and they keep pointing fingers at everybody else. I have said they now own this problem. I should note immigration advocates add that this was as much a rejection of the rhetoric on the right as it was support for Swazi's more moderate approach. Right. And Bridget, last thing, what are the risks for Democrats of reading too much into this one race? 
Well, there are a lot of ways this election was special that might not translate when connecting to other suburban voters. It was the only race on the ballot. Swazi is a real name brand there. Money was pouring into this race with Democrats outspending Republicans. And Swazi built this really diverse coalition of support from labor and others to get out the vote. But Republicans put their bet on a novice who shied away from the campaign trail, right. and voters spent a long time trying to get to know her after the infamous George Santos saga. Mm-hmm. And so that stealth strategy really wasn't a winner there. Bridget Bergen of member station WNYC, thank you. Thank you. This next story is about art, war, and an unexpected friendship, a friendship between women on opposite sides of an Instagram feed. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Dublin, Ireland. Emmeline Blake is a teacher, activist, and artist in Dublin. She paints street murals. Yeah, usually I paint, like, human rights issues, um, equality issues. Her work includes 50-foot portraits of George Floyd, the singer Lizzo, and art in support of same-sex marriage, COVID-19 masks, and World Down Syndrome Day. Since October 7th, though, Emma has focused on the Gaza war. Um, I painted this. It looks like a child with a yarmulke on. Yeah, all any child wants is safety. To be she shows me a mural she painted along a busy Dublin street of Israeli and Palestinian children stacking alphabet blocks that spell out peace, please. And another, probably her most famous mural, of a woman cradling the body of a child wrapped in a Palestinian flag. A lot of people think that it's... Um, A mother holding her child. uh, Emma painted it in early November, inspired by a photo she saw in the news. It's a photo you might recognize, a woman bent over a child's body. It's become an iconic image of Gaza's grief. And Emma's mural has become a tourist attraction in Dublin. A few days after painting it, Emma opened Instagram and saw a direct message. This is my photo and you painted my sweet niece, Massa. That's Samia El-Atrash, the woman in the news photo that Emma painted. She's still alive, still in Gaza, and says it was the body of her niece that she was holding in that photo. My niece, uh, Massa, she's uh, two years. Uh, Massa, she's my uh, heart. She's a sweet baby. Massa was killed in an Israeli airstrike on her home in Rafah, Gaza, on October 21st, along with her sister, her father, and her mother, who was Samia's sister. They were Samia's world. They were everything that Samia has. She's not Emma recalls how Samia reached out to her that day, wanting to tell her about Massa, the child she was holding in that photo. And she wanted to tell her that Massa had a four-year-old sister named Lena, who was killed alongside her. They're not numbers, they're real people who had beautiful dreams and a beautiful home, Samia told us in a phone interview from Rafa, where she's taken refuge with her brother and grandmother, her only relatives who are still alive. After that initial message, Emma bought Samia credit for her cell phone so that they could stay in touch, and they exchange messages daily now. She's a beautiful person. She's held me. Yeah, I mean, like, she sends me messages all the time saying thanks, but, like, I don't need a thanks. Like, I can't even begin to comprehend what she's going through. And the two women have started fundraising for Gaza together. They're selling prints of Emma's mural and donating the proceeds to UNRWA, the UN's Palestinian Relief Agency. And Emma has painted a new mural now. I told Samia that I wanted to paint Massa 
as she should be remembered and not as the image that the whole world has seen of her. It's a two-story painting of a giggling toddler on a wall of pink, Massa's favorite color. And she's clever, so, so clever, sweet baby, and she's so clever. Emma has also written a poem to go with this new mural. It's called Second Time Painting You, and it's just about all of the things that I didn't know the first time I painted Massa. And so in Dublin rush hour, as cars whiz past this mural, Emma reads aloud her poem about Massa. Second time painting you. That cheeky smile. I sketch it now, one finger to your lips. You look off to the side, smiling at someone, something that makes you feel happy, makes you feel safe. I didn't know this about you and I painted you before. Didn't see it. Didn't see your smile. Didn't see the feather in your hair. I will never forget my niece. Masa lives on in her aunt Samia's memory and on a two-story cinder block wall on the side of a tattoo parlor in Dublin. She looks like any other laughing little girl. And only if passersby scan a QR code that Emma has painted in the corner will they learn about a little girl in Gaza named Masa. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Dublin. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. For the first time in more than 20 years, the fastest cross-country skiers in the world are coming to the U.S. for a World Cup race. 30,000 spectators per day are expected to check them out in Minneapolis this coming weekend. But a historically warm and practically snowless winter has made preparing for the race an enormous challenge. Here's Minnesota Public Radio's Dan Crocker. Earlier this month, volunteers cheered on skiers during a race at Theodore Wirth Park in Minneapolis. All right, skiers, you're doing good. With temperatures in the upper 30s, skier Tim Kadri said the conditions were surprisingly good. Absolutely amazing, yeah. It's, they've done a wonderful job. I, I, much better than I expected. Which is kind of remarkable, considering it's barely snowed in Minneapolis since the new year. And for much of that time, it's been much too warm to make artificial snow. We have been on the edge of our seats the entire winter. Claire Wilson is executive director of the Lopit Foundation, which is putting on the World Cup race at the park. She thought they were playing it safe by scheduling it for February. It was not on the table that it would be difficult to put off this race in February in Minnesota. Wilson says they're prepared for low snow years. Over the past two decades, the foundation has raised millions of dollars to build an elaborate snowmaking system. Trails manager Robert Eibler says they got off to a good start early this winter. Snowmaking this year and then right around Christmas we got about three days of rain and 50 degree temperatures where we lost a lot of the snow that we made. Wilson says they basically had to start over. I mean, we were really seriously concerned that we would not be able to put together a course. What saved this year's race was a 10-day cold snap in mid-January. During that stretch, it was a 24-7 effort by crews using snow guns to get the track ready. We had probably made about half of the snow on the course that we needed at that point. And in that, those 10 days, we were able to make probably the other half of the snow that we needed for the event. Now there's a ribbon of densely packed snow from one to three feet thick winding through the trees, surrounded by mud and grass. Not ideal, Wilson says, but enough to put on a safe race. 
When FIS, the international ski governing body, gave the course the official go-ahead, she says her staff was in tears. Because it just felt like we can't lose this, this one other thing, right? We've all kind of had our eyes on it in a winter that has felt a little devoid of hope, honestly. So the fact that we can put this race on in a winter where we are all missing winter, I think has made it even more profound and special. Especially for the thousands of fans itching to see the world's fastest ski racers up close, including Lisa Gerritsen of Minneapolis. Some of us barely got tickets. Um, you know, we set like alarms on our phones to snap up these free tickets because they sold out so fast. But it's great because there's going to be so many people here just like losing their minds <laughs> to watch cross country ski racing. The star attraction is Jesse Diggins. The Minnesota native and Olympic gold medalist is currently leading the World Cup standings. She's been advocating for years for a race to be held in her hometown. It's taken 300 races in every country but my own to finally get to do this in my own country, which is kind of crazy. But that makes it even more special. And she hopes will help further legitimize the sport of cross-country skiing in the U.S. For NPR News, I'm Dan Crocker in Minneapolis. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on WBUR, Kansas City police are expected to give an update any minute now on the shooting near today's parade to celebrate the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl win. At least 10 people were struck by gunfire. Two suspects are in custody. Details at the start of the hour here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. Sure is windy out there and cold, too. 30 degrees now in the Boston area, feeling a lot colder. Tonight, high winds keep coming with clear skies, about 22 for a low. Tomorrow, we should see the sunshine in the morning, but clouds should eventually drift in. A few flurries during the day, temperatures reaching the upper 30s tomorrow. Then for Friday, still close to 40 degrees with mainly sunny skies. It's 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash, cleaning cars since 1966 with 22 New England locations. Learn more about Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited at scrubadub.com. And Mass General Brigham Health Plan, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors, all connected to one of the world's leading healthcare systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit massgeneralbrighamhealthplan.org. The word lucha in Spanish means to fight. Democrats plan a new lucha for Latino votes, getting candidates to make ads in Spanish and Spanglish. You might be nervous doing a full ad in Spanish and maybe sounding, you know, like a gringo or whatever, and you don't want to sound that way. What reaches Latinos at election time? Escúchanos, a morning edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Today marks six years since the mass shooting in Parkland, Florida. That tragedy sparked a youth-run movement on gun control and the group March for Our Lives. Now the group is using AI to get its message across by attempting to recreate the voices of gun violence victims, which you will hear in this piece. NPR's Elena Moore reports. It's a windy and cold day outside the U.S. Capitol building, as Joaquin Oliver's voice echoes across the grounds. Six years ago, I was a senior at Parkland. But Oliver died six years ago. He was one of 17 victims of a mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School on Valentine's Day in 2018. Today, his voice, generated by AI, is the latest action in a movement to curb gun violence. I'm back today because my parents used AI to recreate my voice to call you. Other victims like me will be calling too, again and again, to demand action. How many calls will it take for you to care? The message is one of six, meant to resemble different voices of individuals killed by guns in incidents over the past decade. The thing is, kids like me are dying every day. That's the recreated voice of 15-year-old Ethan Song, who was killed by an unsecured gun at a friend's house in 2018. Ethan, Joaquin, and four others are all part of this initiative by March for Our Lives and the group Change the Ref, which was started by Oliver's parents. His dad, Manny Oliver, joins other parents outside the Capitol today. We don't need to feel miserable the whole life. We are parents. What if we bring our great people message? These messages will appear on the group's new platform called The Shot Line. The users will be able to send the AI-generated audio directly to members of Congress to demand action. To March for Our Lives co-founder and Parkland survivor David Hogg, this statement is a needed step. We have to interrupt people's regularly scheduled programming as a movement to get their attention. And if that means using AI to simulate the voices of people that have been stolen by gun violence, then so be it. But this technology has proven to be controversial in political spaces. AI experts cautiously see this new platform as ethically above board, given each message discloses it's AI generated and the victims' families had a say in the project. As long as they're not trying to be deceptive, which they clearly are not, I think it's both powerful And I think it shows an effective and non-nefarious use case of generative AI. That's Hani Farid, a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, who specializes in digital forensics. To him, the initiative does raise questions about the political future of AI. You do feel like this is the beginning of something, that if we say this is okay and we come to accept it, well, tell me what's next and what's next and what's next. The questions are not lost on the gun control advocates. But to Manny Oliver, it's time for people to feel uncomfortable. This is a tool that if it's in the good hands, you can do great things. I think our hands are good. The Shotline is taking submissions for more victim stories. And Oliver says today's launch is only the beginning. Elena Moore, NPR News. The French movie La Haine was a sensation when it came out 30 years ago. It was a groundbreaking story of Paris's troubled suburban housing projects. Three decades later, it is being turned into a musical. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley tells us more. 
dozens of young dancers, male and female, black, white, and brown, warm up in a studio in the west of Paris. They've made the first cut for the musical adaptation of La Haine, Hatred in English. Farid Benlage is the show's producer. We had more than 1,000 for the first casting. Now for the callback, we have 45. Only 15 of these dancers will make the cast. Benlage says despite their youth, they all know the film. Today, we have also the new generation of artists, very fan of this film. It's an iconic film, it's an iconic movie. So we have a, a big brand to do it now on stage. La N traces a day in the life of three young French guys. One is black, one an Arab, and one a Jew, after their friend is killed by police in the housing projects where they live. Director Mathieu Kasovitz was 27 when he made the film. The movie is a political movie. It's an activist movie that I did 30 years ago about police brutality. And we thought that, uh, you know, we might see the end of it at some point. But the story remains relevant. Only last summer, a young man of North African descent was killed by police at a traffic stop in the Paris suburbs. It set off riots across France. Filmmaker Kasovitz says what has changed is the creative voice of the projects has gone mainstream. You know, it's not like 30 years ago where none of these kids had an idea, you know, how to succeed in life. People are coming to Paris to express what they created in their own environment. The hood, as you can call it, is very creative. In the movie, a young DJ blasts his mix from the open windows of his top-floor apartment. That DJ, named Cut Killer, is back to help compose for the musical, and Kasovitz is back, too, directing the show. I thought it was a great idea, because the way I conceived the movie 30 years ago, it's like a hip-hop movie, so every scene is like a little song, you know? The dancers are split into several groups and must choreograph a dance scene. It's a test, says producer Ben Laga. To see how they can think, they can imagine, they can interpret really quickly. It's not an easy exercise, says 28-year-old dancer and rapper Marcus Dosavi, who dreams of getting a part. Everyone has an ego, of course, and the thing is, you need to manage to work together, to, to, to blend in, but if you have something to say, you need to say it. At the same time, there is hip hop dancers, there is uh, break dancers, there is camp, it's uh, like a new urban dance, there is also electro dancer. Emily Capel is one of the show's choreographers. They're going to be more than dancers in the show, there will be interprets. Interpret, interpreting each character through dance like actor and dancer Camille Halima Filali, who's among the finalists. This performance gives a great chance for us artists who have often been bruised by life to speak about things through dance. There are a lot of people who have been forgotten in the world and who are trying to find their words and their place. We are their voice. Kasovitz says turning his film into a musical made sense. We're still expressing the same rage and the same um, uh, hate that we expressed in the first movie, you know. It's just a different way of doing it, but we still have the same strength. La N, the musical, opens in Paris this October. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris.
It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. From Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston overnight tonight. A chilly night down around the low 20s, feeling a lot colder, though. Tomorrow, partly sunny early and then clouds for the majority of the day. Temperatures up around 38 degrees. Could have a few flurries during the day tomorrow into early Friday. In Boston, now 30 degrees. This is WBUR. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Police in Kansas City, Missouri, say two people are in custody after gunfire broke out not far from the parade this afternoon to celebrate the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl victory. There are up to 15 people injured. One person is confirmed dead. Today is Wednesday, February 14th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, could the Democrats' victory in the New York special election yesterday give the party a way to deal with immigration in the coming election year? Now the Pope Francis has okayed priests blessing same-sex couples. LGBTQ Catholics are trying to figure out how to ask for these blessings themselves and whether they want them. And a growing number of consumers are turning to a service called Buy Now, Pay Later to buy items in installments over several weeks. It can be a useful tool to purchase things that you really need in a pinch and you just don't have the cash. The time is 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Authorities in Kansas City, Missouri, say a shooting incident at the end of a Super Bowl victory parade there has left as many as 15 people injured today, a number of them seriously. Police have confirmed at least one death. Kansas City Police Chief Stacy Graves at a news conference expressed outrage. The day that should have been celebratory was marred by tragedy. I'm angry at what happened today. The people who came to this celebration should expect a safe environment. We had over 800 law enforcement officers, Kansas City and other agencies. Police say they've detained two people in connection with the incident. Also not clear as how many people were injured by gunfire or may have been hurt running away. Police are continuing their investigation. The White House is strongly pushing back against Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson after Johnson announced the House would not take up the bipartisan aid package that would fund border security and Ukraine. NPR's Deepa Shivram has more. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre says the Biden administration will continue to put pressure on Johnson to put the bill for a vote on the floor. She says if he does, it would pass. I think the speaker's confused. I think the speaker doesn't understand what it is that his job is. Put that bill to the floor. 
Johnson says he needs a one-on-one -on -one meeting with President Biden, but the White House pushed back and said the speaker is the one killing the bill and that Johnson has chosen to side with former President Donald Trump, who doesn't want to give Biden a political win. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, the White House. Ukraine's military says it sank a Russian landing ship in the Black Sea today using naval drones. Or that has not been confirmed by Russian forces. Russia said it downed six Ukrainian drones over the Black Sea overnight. The World Health Organization's top official in Gaza is warning if Israel goes ahead with a ground invasion of the southern city of Rafah, the impact on people sheltering there would be, quote, unfathomable. More from NPR's Nareed Eisenman. WHO's Dr. Rick Peepercorn says that as Gazans have fled Israeli military operations elsewhere in the Strip, about 1.5 million people are now crammed into Rafah, and it's become a last refuge. Uh, there's a lot of talk about evacuation. That would be a complete catastrophe. There's nowhere people can go. There's no room for any evacuation. Peepercorn also expressed dismay that less than half of WHO's proposed medical missions have been granted safe passage. And he said that with Gaza's hospitals only partially functional, it's urgent to set up a system for evacuating about 8,000 seriously injured and sick people to Egypt. Nareet Eisenman, NPR News. Stocks regained some of their lost ground today. The Dow was up 151 points. The Nasdaq rose 203 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts leaders are expressing concern about nine community hospitals in Massachusetts that are owned by Steward Healthcare. Steward is a for-profit company that has been dealing with financial problems, and that's what sparked fears it could close some facilities. Governor Maura Healy addressed the state public health council today. She calls this a matter of top concern for her administration. Our job is to work together to make sure that patients are protected, that our healthcare providers are protected and able to continue to do the important work that they do throughout the state, and that the stability of our healthcare system is protected. Healy says by next week, the state will expand monitoring efforts at all nine steward-owned hospitals in the state. MIT has suspended a student group that has been protesting the war in Gaza. The school's president announced today the Coalition Against Apartheid did not follow proper rules when it held an on-campus demonstration Monday night. The suspension means the group cannot hold further demonstrations on campus and will not receive any university funding. In a statement on social media, the group says its free speech rights have been met with sanctions and suppression by the administration. A state financial aid program for public colleges is being underutilized. That's according to recent testimony from an education nonprofit leader on Beacon Hill. Governor Maura Healey allocated an additional $62 million for the Mass Grant Plus program last year. It helps cover the cost of tuition and fees for eligible students, but many guidance counselors said they didn't know about the program. The state's higher education commissioner said the state is ramping up communications about the new program. It's Valentine's Day today, the second busiest day of the year for restaurants. President of the Mass Restaurant Association Steve Clark says only Mother's Day is busier. He says because Valentine's Day is on a Wednesday this year, it gives couples more chance to enjoy a night out. A fair number of people are actually going out tonight. A lot of people lost business yesterday on Tuesday. I talked to some operators that, you know, were fully booked and, and lost business with the false alarm on the storm. So there's a little bit of pent-up demand for people to go out in, in the middle of the week, and, and they're going out tonight, and other people have pushed it forward to the weekend. Clark says some folks celebrated Valentine's Day with a night out last weekend. He says this marks the kickoff to the spring season when the restaurant industry starts to thrive. 30 degrees in Boston, a beautiful day today, a stiff wind 
Tonight, wind gusts could reach about 33 miles an hour. Tomorrow, clouds collect during the day, should be in the upper 30s. The time is 5.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We begin with what could be good news for Democrats. Now, one single election does not a trend make, but does Democrat Tom Suozzi's victory and the special election for New York's 3rd Congressional District, does it mean something bigger for Democrats? The congressman won the seat, which until recently had been held by disgraced Republican George Santos, by diving head-on into an issue that Democrats would would usually rather avoid immigration, like in January, when his opponent, Mazi Pillip, held an event at a migrant shelter in Queens and blamed Swazi for the border crisis. He created this problem. He supported President Biden 100% of the time. When Swazi learned of the event, he drove straight to the shelter and held his own press conference. The press conference was just held, so I thought it was important that I come here and just rebut uh, some of the things that she brought up directly. Is this the opening chapter in a playbook other Democrats might use to deal with the thorny political issue of immigration? That's a question we're going to put to NPR senior editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. He's in New York. Hey, Domenico. Hey, Mary Louise. So walk us through exactly how Swazi approached the immigration issue and particularly compared to other Democrats. Yeah, he really decided that you have to take this issue head on. He tacked toward the middle. He called for the border to largely be shut down, came out in support of the bipartisan congressional compromise that was derailed by Trump and the hard right. And Pillip, his opponent? Well, she came out against the bipartisan compromise, really sort of playing to the Trump uh, side of things, which then played into what Democrats wanted to do in painting her as extreme. Okay, so just get specific. What is noticeable about Swazi's approach as compared to other Democrats on immigration? Yeah, I mean, this was a real potential roadmap what he did on immigration uh, because, you know, other Democrats who are looking to win in the suburbs, this is something that they were nervous about uh, it coming after them, you know, because Republicans have really tried on a host of other issues, education, crime, now immigration. Um, Understandable they would try immigration, but they really haven't been able to turn the tide. They've had this advantage on immigration in the polls. Biden doesn't fare well on his handling of it at all. But what Democrats here was not dismiss or avoid immigration in this race or th- or the economy, by the way, for that matter. I'd say it's a little bit of a, like a Bill Clinton strategy. Feel your pain, come up with solutions that the middle might find pretty reasonable. What about other issues? Did he try a similar approach on things like abortion, for example? Well, what Democrats really tried to do was focus on Pillip's record, her ethics, and abortion was also like the other major issue that wound up being aired across uh, this district. And it wasn't just in this district. I mean, we had another election uh, in Pennsylvania uh, where Democrats held uh, the state house, and there was a local legislator there who wound up winning his race and cited abortion as a key issue for what his uh, constituents wanted. Uh, and, you know, Democrats in this race used Pillip saying that she was pro-life, accused her of wanting to push for a policy with no restriction, which echoes the National Republican Party platform. Um, and they leaned into this message about Pillip being an ethical nightmare, as they said, and an embarrassment. Listen to this attack ad. Same story, new name. 
Mozzie Pillip's about to embarrass us again, refusing to answer questions, subpoenaed to testify about unpaid bills from her family's business. She so, you know, really dropping the oppo book on her. Um, and in the beginning of that ad, when they said same story, new name, they had shown George Santos's face, and it really did wind up hurting her in this race. So let's land on the question that I put to you at the beginning. Has Swazi figured out something of a playbook that other Democrats running other races might use? Well, partially, I think he did. You know, I think that for lack of better phrasing, when we talk about the suburbs, it really comes down to normal versus extreme. And Democrats have done a pretty good job with that uh, framing. You know, they made the they made this race into a painting of their candidate as sort of the adult in the room willing to compromise against a Republican MAGA extremist who isn't. Um, that's worked lots of times, especially in this era of Trump. He's very unpopular in the suburbs. Republicans haven't figured out how to get the message or the messengers right in these areas that are often also swing areas. And on the issues, on the, on the messaging for Democrats, something like immigration, like the economy, where their back is a little bit against the wall, where they're a little bit defensive, Swazi showed that there is a way to thread that needle and to be able to talk about it in a strong way. But they have to have policies that tack toward the middle that can resonate with those voters. NPR's Domenico Montanaro in New York. Thanks, Domenico. Hey, you're welcome. Are you looking for love? If you are dipping your toe in the dating pool right now, you may have noticed that some things have changed. Here to talk with us about the latest trends in dating and how to have a good time while exploring your love life is Demona Hoffman. She's a certified dating coach and author of the book F the Fairy Tale, Rewrite the Dating Myths and Live Your Own Love Story. Demona, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I will just confess that it has been a minute since I have been out there dating or on the apps or any of that. So I want to turn over this question to you. What are some of the biggest trends in dating that you've been seeing? Oh, wow. There's been a lot of trends lately that are different as technology has shifted. We're seeing a trend to incorporate AI into our dating lives. And that's, I mean, even a year ago, if we were having this conversation, most singles didn't even really know what AI was. Now we're seeing that singles are using AI to write their dating profiles, some of them to craft their first message. And the studies I've looked at have said that the singles who use AI are reporting finding more matches, getting better matches, and meeting people faster in the real world, which is what I'm all about. Okay, but you are a dating coach. Would you recommend that someone who's out there trying to date, do you recommend that they use AI? Or how would you recommend that someone use it? I actually am a big fan of AI because I've always said that you need to get offline and into the real world. A dating app or any any form of online dating, and I consider everything that happens online as part of our online identity, that could be a venue for dating. So there's so many ways to connect, and we should be using all of the tools that we have to expedite that process of getting to that face-to-face -face real human connection. Okay, I have a broad question about online dating. I met my partner online many years ago, and I'm curious today, is online dating still as prevalent as it felt like it used to be about a decade ago, or has that landscape changed in any way? Online dating is definitely bigger than it was a decade ago. And I also met my husband online a long time ago. It's shifted since then as people have moved to the apps and really embraced the efficiency of the apps. So it's definitely working, but we are seeing a trend 
as as people are moving into the real world again, we're really craving face-to-face connection. So speed dating, which had been pretty much eradicated in that golden age of online dating that you were speaking of, has returned. And people are now seeking out in-person events and looking for ways to to blend that with their online dating experience, too. What are some tips that you would tell someone who's considering going to one of those speed dating events? Well, first of all, don't take yourself too seriously. (laughs) It's just (laughs) another way to connect. And come to either speed dating or your first date when you've met someone online prepared. Have some stories that you're ready to share. Have some great questions that really will inspire curiosity. That's really the magic of a first date or a first meeting is leaving someone just curious enough about you to want to see you again. There is this trend that we have heard of called living apart together where couples start a life together, but they don't live together. Can you unpack this for me and tell me whether you think it's a recipe for a strong partnership. This has been a trend for a few years now, especially we saw it among daters 55 plus who really had their life set. They have their social circle, their career, their family. And while they craved partnership, the idea of having someone come into their space and shake things up didn't feel as appealing as it did for maybe 20-something daters who are looking for someone to build a life with. The interesting thing that's been happening lately, Juana, is that younger daters are now starting to embrace this trend. And as I say in F the Fairy Tale, you get to write your own love story. So a lot of people have been on this relationship escalator. We meet, we fall in love, we move in together, and then what's next? And I love that people are starting to realize that that doesn't have to be the path for them. And you can still build a strong relationship, even if you are not cohabitating with one another. I also understand that you have seen that daters now are more open to talking about money and personal finances than daters in the past. Can you say a little bit more about that? And how do you recommend people handle those conversations? They can be hard and intimidating. Yes, I used to say, don't talk about finances on a first date at all. But now we're actually seeing, especially among Gen Z and young millennial daters, that they are pursuing what they call financial flames, Mm. that they want someone that they can build a financial future with. And they're bringing the conversation about money into first dates, into the conversation very early on. They're splitting checks. They're even sending money to partners as gifts using apps like like Wise and Venmo. And they are finding that that is romantic for them. While people might think sending money to a partner, how is that that something uh, that really shows your love? But we can show our love in a lot of different ways. And if you are pursuing a financial flame, it makes sense that sending money might uh, increase the feelings of uh, romanticism. That's Demona Hoffman, dating coach and author of the book, F the Fairy Tale. Demona, thank you. Thank you.
It's All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, a massive new study about faith in films is getting attention in Hollywood and beyond. Also in Washington State, a musical duo, an 82-year-old singer and 78-year-old piano player, have been inseparable on stage for almost 30 years. We'll hear their story coming up at about 545. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov and the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday, harvardartmuseums.org. Today on Wall Street, the stocks picked up territory overall. The Dow rose four-tenths of a percent. S&P gained nearly a full percent, and the Nasdaq grew by one and three-tenths of a percent. Cambridge Savings Bank has a new president and CEO. The company says Ryan Bailey will take over at the end of this month. Bailey is a former head of retail banking for USAA in Texas. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, where curiosity fuels discovery. Explo is part magic, part summer enrichment program for kids and teens entering grades 4 through 12. Day and overnight programs in Boston, Berkeley, London, New York, and Oxford. For more information, visit explo.org slash summer. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering at City Space on Monday, March 4th for a conversation with award-winning journalist Maria Inahosa, host of Latino USA. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. In the forecast, winds keep on coming tonight. Clear skies, about 22 degrees for a low overnight, feeling a lot colder. Tomorrow should see sunshine in the morning, but then clouds will eventually drift in. A few flurries as well, temperatures in the upper 30s. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Just minutes after the victory celebration for the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs ended earlier today, shots were fired nearby. Police say at least one person is dead and several others were injured. Officials also say they have detained armed suspects. That shooting broke the joyful mood of thousands who had come to take part in the day, marking the Chiefs' third Super Bowl win in five seasons. We're joined now by member station reporter KCUR's Frank Morris. Frank was at the rally and has more details. Hi there. Hi, Juana. I mean, Frank, you were there. This day was supposed to be a huge celebration there in the city. Tell us what happened. Uh, it was a huge celebration. I mean, there was a lot of joy and unity and, you know, just all these red shirts, tens of thousands of people in red shirts. The sky was bright blue. It was like 55 degrees. It's confetti in the air. And then shots rang out at Union Station just after. Union Station is the big train station here. That's where the rally took place. After the rally concluded, shots rang out to the side of the station. And there was a big rush in the crowd. Um, Kansas City Police Chief Stacy Graves spoke with reporters a few minutes ago. I'm angry at what happened today. The people who came to this celebration should expect a safe environment 
we had over 800 law enforcement officers, Kansas City and other agencies, at the location to keep everyone safe. Because of bad actors, which were very few, this tragedy occurred. And police then quickly dispersed tens of thousands of people from that close-in area around the rally. People fled, leaving strollers, backpacks, and chairs littered on the ground with the confetti. And again, the police have two suspects in custody. And Frank, I know the situation is still unfolding and we're still learning more. But at this point, do we know anything about the victims? I know very little about the victims. There are up to 15 of them. Police say they don't know much because people kept walking into hospitals. People were walking into area hospitals as of 20 minutes ago. Uh, Again, one fatality uh, the police chief said there were no children involved. Frank, I got to tell you, I've been here in Washington watching this parade, this rally play out. Kansas City is my hometown. I want you to just paint a picture for us of what things were like there in that area around Union Station before the violence began. I watched the parade from the, the very beginning of the parade. So down, uh, you know, a few miles away. And people were just lined up. It was thick because the weather was so great. It's just crisp, nice, beautiful spring weather. Again, it was just crystal clear blue skies. It was fun. People were joyous. And this sense of unity at this thing, you know, every one of these Super Bowl parades is just palpable. All the divisions in society seem to be kind of wiped away. And and people like uh, Taya Korik, Kokorik, rather, watched the parade with huge smiles on their faces. Oh, it's excitement. Everything's electric. Here to celebrate with the whole city. A lot of happy, excited people. So this is Kansas City's third Super Bowl win in five seasons, as you say. It came hot on the heels of last year's win. A longtime fan, Melanie McKay, rooted for the team in the lean years, and she's still getting used to this winning. I, I hate to say it, but I think we're having a dynasty. It's it's just, it's amazing. I just can't even, there aren't words for it to me. Yeah, and then all that joy just got it, it snapped in a second. It's hard U-turn with a shooting at the end of the uh, rally. Frank, we've just got a couple seconds left here. I'm just curious, what are things like there now? I see coverage of the crowds dispersing. Tell us what you're seeing and hearing. Yeah, I'd say things are pretty somber here. Again, this was just a stunning reversal and you hear like hardened TV reporters and, and every, you know, with their voices cracking. It's a very sad day here, which started as a really happy one. That is Frank Morris with member station KCUR reporting from Kansas City. Frank, thank you. You bet one. Bob Marley, One Love. Perfect title for a film opening on Valentine's Day, right? British actor Kingsley Benadir stars as the reggae musician who became a worldwide cultural figure. Our critic, Bob Mondello, says the film is clearly heartfelt. We begin in 1976 when Marley was already a superstar and in a politically volatile Jamaica, a contentious one. Pulled over at a police checkpoint in a way that's scary for his kids, he deflects as they drive away. Don't worry about a thing. But onlookers scatter as he arrives home to go over plans for the weekend Smile Jamaica concert with his manager. Where them running to? They're scared. They've seen enough. <laughs> scared of what? Everything here is politicized, Bob. You do know I was called into the American ambassador's office. Oh, yeah? Oh, what did say? 
Apparently, I've been associating with someone who could destabilize the country. With me? <laughs> Marley's amused because the whole point of the concert is to stabilize the country. Just a few years after Jamaica gained its independence from Britain, he jogs past armored trucks and soldiers every morning, and still he's all about peace and love and, yes, weed. Reggae is a people music. People coming together. But others don't always hear that message. With warring gangs and political rivalries, it's hard for even this most laid-back of artists to avoid getting caught in the crossfire. That very day, two gunmen slip into his compound, wounding him and almost killing his wife, Rita. The family leaves Jamaica, and in a London dominated by punk, where racism and rebellion seem to go hand-in-hand, Bob Marley and the Whalers create what Time Magazine later called the best album of the 20th century. The creation of the Exodus LP, apparently despite the cluelessness of record executives, provides director Reynaldo Marcus Green with some of the film's sharper moments, as does Rita's growing frustration. Who really know ya? Who really care about you, Bob? Especially with her husband's lackadaisical attitude about corruption mm. among their associates. You swim in pollution, you get polluted. We used to talk about this and everything else when you only had one shirt. Lashana Lynch's Rita Marley is as forceful as Kingsley Benadir's Bob Marley is charismatic, but the storytelling often slackens and the film's many flashbacks don't really pick up the slack, though there's a nice one where the still adolescent whalers wow producers with a brightly ska simmer down. Those peaks back do let us see how Rita and Bob got together as kids, both abandoned by parents, she leading him to the Rastafarian beliefs that shaped his life and lyrics. But after a while, the flashbacks also seem a dodge, short-circuiting any chance that the film will explore the connection between the peace and pan-Africanism Marley championed and the recently post-colonial audiences who first embraced him. There's a war going on. You can't separate the music and the message. But the film kinda does, possibly because this is the most authorized of authorized biopics. With several Marley relatives listed as producers, small wonder the singer comes across as saintly. Still, what audiences will come to Bob Marley one love for is the music, and when Benadir is jerking his body to the rhythms and the band is jamming, the film's failures in storytelling will hardly be front of mind for anyone. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, new data on the risk shoppers take by using the service called Buy Now, Pay Later. In sports, the Celtics get to be the home team tonight as they play the Brooklyn Nets. Celts beat the Nets last night in Brooklyn. If they win tonight, it'll be their sixth in a row. Start time in the Garden is 7.30 tonight. And Boston's new professional women's hockey team is going to be on home ice in Lowell tonight to host Toronto. And Red Sox pitchers and catchers reported to Fort Myers for their first spring training workout today. This is 90.9 WBUR, 30 degrees in Boston at 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day. Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador. Play anytime at wbur.org fun. Five across. 
biggest toy maker. Four Down Rock Concert Pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. A shooting in Kansas City, Missouri near the celebration of the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs. Police say up to 15 people were injured and one victim is dead. Two suspects are in custody. Kansas City Police Chief Stacy Graves. Because of bad actors, which were very few, this tragedy occurred, even in the presence of uniformed law enforcement officers. Kansas City officials say 600 Kansas City police and 250 outside agencies were stationed at the chief celebration today. Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas called it an absolute tragedy that was never expected in Kansas City. Israel's military ordered the evacuation of civilians sheltering at one of the last major hospitals still functioning in Gaza, forcing many to flee. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, Israel alleges Hamas was carrying out military activity at the hospital. Without providing details, Israel's military said Hamas was operating from the Nasser Medical Complex in the southern Gaza city of Han Yunus. Many civilians fled carrying whatever belongings they could, according to video and witness accounts. Thousands of civilians have been living on the hospital grounds, hoping it would provide some measure of safety. The Israeli military said it opened a route for civilians to move from the hospital to a safe zone in the city. The hospital staff and patients were allowed to stay. Israel's offensive in Gaza has led to the shutdown of virtually every major medical complex in the territory. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. On Capitol Hill, GOP Speaker Mike Johnson is telling reporters the House will not be, quote, jammed to act on a Senate-passed foreign aid package for Israel, Ukraine, and other allies. Wall Street, the Dow closed up 151. The S&P 500 gained 47 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Voters in Milton today are deciding the fate of a zoning change that could bring hundreds of new housing units into town. It would put the town in compliance with a state law that requires communities that are served by the MBTA to rezone to allow more housing. Opponents of the change argue it would bring more traffic and luxury housing to Milton. Those in favor say it would allow more people to move in. Town meeting member Judy White Orlando voted for the change. I would be embarrassed if the town voted no. I think it would be send the wrong message to people that live here, that want to live here. And I think it would send the wrong message to all residents of Massachusetts in the country. Polls in Milton are open until 8 o'clock tonight. Federal and Boston law enforcement officials charged more than 40 alleged members of a Boston gang on federal racketeering charges today. Prosecutors say they're members of the Heath Street gang that operates primarily from the Mildred Haley apartments in Jamaica Plain. They say the group carried out murders, drug trafficking, financial fraud, and more. They're also accused of trying to recruit young people into the gang. Investigators say today's arrests follow a two-year investigation into gang violence in Boston. A bronze sculpture of abolitionist Frederick Douglass was unveiled in the Massachusetts Senate chamber today. It's the first state-commissioned bust of a black person to grace the statehouse. WBR's Amelia Mason reports it is the first work of its kind added to the chamber in 125 years. 
The idea for a bust of Frederick Douglass originated in 2019, when the Senate underwent renovations. Senate President Karen Spilka vowed to add a bust of a woman and a person of color to join sculptures of white male politicians that live in the chamber's alcoves. I left two vacant because I know, as human nature, you put something in temporarily, and I put quotes around that word. You think it's only for a few years, 30, 40, 50 years or more later, it's still there. Douglas settled in Massachusetts for a time after escaping enslavement. At a ceremony unveiling the bust, he was celebrated for his contributions to abolition, civil rights, and women's suffrage. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. 29 degrees now in Boston. The forecast is next. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors, all connected to one of the world's leading healthcare systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. Clear and cold tonight, down around 22 degrees, but feeling a lot colder than for tomorrow. Some sunshine in the morning, clouds by the afternoon, temperatures in the upper 30s. 29 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from the station and from BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. One in five shoppers now uses Buy Now, Pay Later. The service lets people pay for purchases in installments over several weeks, and it is clearly growing. And new research finds that how you use Buy Now, Pay Later likely depends on your access to credit. NPR's Alina Seljuk reports. The first time Miguel Carcado used Buy Now, Pay Later, he came upon an airline ticket from his home in Ohio to visit family in Puerto Rico on sale for 30% off. Trying to get the best deal on the airfare. And sometimes that one ticket that pops up when when you don't have the money or you don't want to tie up with the money right away. He didn't want to tie up his money, so he used the service called Klarna to split the airfare into four payments over time. And it worked so well, he did it again with a suitcase. Normally, we'll try to get something, you know, a little bit cheap, inexpensive. But he thought, time to get higher quality luggage. I can get what I want, as opposed to having to, to settle. Kirkado has now paid off both those purchases and become a buy now, pay later pro, joining about 20% of shoppers who've used services from Klarna, Affirm, and other similar companies. That's according to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which has been studying how people use these relatively new payment options. Kirkado illustrates one strategy, which is using buy now, pay later to keep his credit line for more urgent needs. The whole point is to try to not pay interest. You don't want to put yourself in a situation where you keep buying stuff and you don't have much of a credit line left. The distinction is this, where credit cards charge interest if you don't pay the full bill at the end of the month, a typical buy now, pay later offer lets you pay for one purchase in four or six installments interest free. The New York Fed found that people with good access to credit tend to use the service for that reason, to avoid interest on big-ticket items. 
but the majority of users are not like that. A lot of younger consumers without credit history find it just very convenient to have that option. Kimberly Palmer has been tracking this as a personal finance expert at NerdWallet. Buy Now Pay Later is most appealing to people that either have limited credit or they don't want to use their credit cards. These are the folks who have fueled the growth of these services, including people with lower credit scores or missed credit card payments. They use Buy Now Pay Later for smaller purchases under $250. The New York Fed says they are also much more likely to be frequent flyers using Buy Now Pay Later five or more times a year. Although the survey shows pretty much anyone who's used the service once will probably use it again. And uh, when the options started popping up, I was like, yeah, this is awesome. It's convenient. Mara Chris Bazell is from Houston. She uses Buy Now Pay Later to spread out financial pain of holiday shopping. She has set up auto pay straight from her bank account. I limit myself and I budget myself by using my debit card because with the debit card, you can't spend more than you already got. And that is the danger of Buy Now Pay Later, as all experts will warn. When you're saying, oh, yeah, for this $200 purchase, you only have to pay 50 bucks today. And then, you know, you make other big purchases, perhaps. And that can add up really quickly. Palmer at NerdWallet says buy now, pay later companies are starting to act more like credit cards, adding new interest fees and higher late penalties. And missed payments can be reported to credit bureaus. That means buy now, pay later rarely helps to build up a credit score, but can hurt it depending on the situation. It can be a useful tool to purchase things that you really need in a pinch and you just don't have the cash. But where you can run into trouble is if you start using buy now, pay later to buy optional or luxury items, and then you end up really getting in over your head with the payments. And so she says the main thing to remember is that buy now, pay later is still debt that requires careful tracking. Alina Seluch, NPR News. Pope Francis declared just before Christmas that Catholic priests could now bless same-sex couples. The church does not view these relationships as marriages, but as NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose reports, the change is important to many gay, lesbian, and bisexual Catholics. A few years ago, Javier Lopez and his partner of 14 years, Sergio Guzman, were visiting family in Mexico. While there, a priest, who's a longtime friend, surprised Lopez, saying, I just want to make sure that you guys take care of each other. And at that point, he actually asked us to kneel in front of him and gave us a blessing. And we were, like, shocked and surprised and really like, wow, I guess this is official now, you know. It was a deeply touching moment for both Lopez and Guzman. He was a friend of the family but represents the church as well, so it was a great affirmation and not a condemnation of our relationship. The blessing wasn't planned or even asked for, but Lopez says that was part of the priest's gift to them. He can probably say that we were very uh, committed relationship, that we also were Catholics and we always went to Mass all the time when we went there. Essentially, Pope Francis's recent allowance for such blessings officially okayed a practice that priests have been doing for a long time, but more or less on the down low. Here in Southern California, the couple regularly attends Saturday evening mass with the LGBTQ Catholic group Dignity. Chris Capiello is president of the local chapter. He says the announcement about blessings came as a welcome surprise. Maybe not everything we're hoping for and working for, but huge progress. Progress, he says, not just for LGBTQ Catholics themselves. But for family members, particularly parents, 
who may be experiencing this terrible tension and conflict between what their church is teaching them and what their heart is telling them about their child who is in a loving partnership. Capiello says there is still much work to do, work that includes eliminating the church's official teaching that homosexuality is intrinsically disordered and that sexual activity between people of the same sex is a grave sin. I'm not seeking the blessing of a church that is oppressive to LGBTQ people. I'm seeking to change the church in which I was born and raised. But those changes are not what these blessings are about. And the job of Father Chris Ponette in the LA Archdiocese is to help both priests and parishioners understand them. The church continues to maintain that the sacrament of marriage is between a man and a woman for the rest of their life. Ponette says what the Pope's allowing is similar to how priests bless all sorts of things, like homes and pets. It's simply saying we who believe in blessings should be instruments of blessings to others. And he says it's important to distinguish exactly what priests are blessing. We're not blessing the relationship, we're blessing the individuals in front of us. And I appreciate the pain that that causes, and I don't know how to get around that. Any priest can decline to do a blessing, but Ponette advises ones in the LA Archdiocese unwilling to do them to refer same-sex couples to him so he can help them find a priest who will. Despite these blessings being far short of marriage, lifelong Catholic Sergio Guzman says what he and his partner received from the priest in Mexico a few years ago, even before it was officially allowed, was meaningful. The church is able to bless us and we are able to bless the church with our presence, with our gifts, and we don't have to stay away. Which Guzman says allows him to live in hope for what lies ahead. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Los Angeles. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In Richland, a city in southeastern Washington, there is a musical duo that's well known for performing at weddings, clubs, and musical reviews. Its members are in their late 70s and early 80s, and they have been playing together for nearly 30 years. On this Valentine's Day, Northwest News Network's Anna King has their story, a tribute to a partnership of a different kind. The second Saturday of each month at the Emerald of Siam, a restaurant in Richland, you'll hear 82-year-old Mary Lou Ganoza. And her piano man, Stevie Haberman. He's 78. Mary Lou has short brick red hair and wears red lipstick rhinestones sparkle on her cane and nails. Stevie's got less flash in a basic collared shirt and pants. When he's playing, he wears a serious expression absorbed in the music. But between songs, he's quick to crack jokes. He makes me laugh. And sometimes it's really hard to sing when you're laughing. (laughs) But I enjoy it very much. Mary Lou and Stevie were set up in 1996 by a fellow musician for an internet cafe gig. 
Mary Lou, a seamstress with an eye for smart attire, initially wasn't impressed with Stevie. It was winter, and he walked in wearing a huge, unfashionable parka and hunting cap with ear flaps. But she decided to sing with him anyway. He said, what do you want to do? And I said, more than you know in F. More than you know More than you know It went from somebody's playing the piano to, oh my God, listen to that man play. And it was like he was breathing at the same time I was. It's like we'd been working together for years. After that, they became inseparable on stage, playing at the Emerald, but also multiple nights a week at local bars, venues, and private events. They've slowed down a bit as they've aged, but they still play together at least once a month. Partnership, you know, I'm married to the beautiful Deborah. So Deborah's my wife, Mary Lou's my second wife. She's my mistress. Oh, stop! Mistress of music, okay? And they've been through some tough times together like when Mary Lou lost her adult son, Tom, almost 10 years ago, at the funeral. Steve just played. It just felt so good. It was so comforting. Here we're going on as normal. Over the years, they've also had to deal with some health issues. Mary Lou broke a bone in her leg, and Stevie has Parkinson's. These mobility problems mean they have to find friends to drive them to the gigs. But despite these challenges, after about 27 years of playing together, they can still rip on stage. For NPR News, I'm Anna King in Richland. Each day is Valentine's Day. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered at the top of the hour, Kansas City police say shots were fired near Union Station at the conclusion of the celebration for the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl win. At least one person was killed this afternoon, up to 15 injured, and two suspects are now in custody. Details at the start of the hour here at 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. And the ICA, art from the Caribbean and beyond, in a groundbreaking new exhibition. On view now, icaboston.org. Clear tonight, down around 22 degrees. Some bright skies early tomorrow, then clouds move in. High should be in the upper 30s. Boston is known for many things. Sports, the American Revolution, esteemed universities. But what does it really mean to live here? For WBUR's Field Guide to Boston, we heard from residents about moments that made them love this city. I once saw a guy trip while running for an orange line train, and his Charlie card and IDs flew like frisbees in every direction. I slid my foot between the doors to hold it open. Another guy helped the man get up. A woman in hospital scrubs collected the contents of his wallet. 
I grew up hearing everything from R&B, soul, jazz, Boston, space funk, house, or rap blaring out of boomboxes, cars, windows, and storefronts. One of their chefs would chat with me in Vietnamese, addressing me as younger sister. I called him older brother. To hear more love letters to Boston and to share your own, check out WBUR.org slash field guide. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. A massive new study about faith as portrayed on screen is getting attention in Hollywood and beyond. NPR's Netta Ulibi has more. There was a time when movies about people of faith were wildly popular. Amen. When the movie Lilies of the Field came out in 1963, it got dozens of award nominations, including a Best Actor Oscar for Sidney Poitier. Even a Hollywood musical like Fiddler on the Roof was, for many non-Jews, a chance to feel part of Shabbat. May the Lord protect and defend you. But religious characters on screen have become oversimplified. That's according to the Faith and Media Initiative. Its new study surveyed 10,000 people in 11 countries. The purpose of the study wasn't to make a case that we want a bunch of religious cinema. Brooke Zog, the initiative's director, says many of the study's religious respondents felt their spiritual side was represented more poorly than even their race or gender. It was sensationalized or misrepresented, and so they felt like they were not seen. Or if they were, it was negative. Survey respondents from all faiths said Christians generally came off the best, although occasionally seen as homophobic. Jews sometimes closed-minded or racist, but no one fared worse than Muslims. It said they are represented as violent, closed-minded, misogynistic, malicious, homophobic, and racist. The list was extremely long. It wasn't one or two things. It was all the things. A non-stereotypical TV show such as Rami on Hulu is an exception. One character is a thoughtful sheikh. By the grace of Allah, I found my teacher. She taught me that Islam is like an orange. Stories like this, says Brooke Zog, can teach us to better understand our neighbors. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. Afrobeats music is everywhere right now. If you open up TikTok or turn on the radio, you may hear artists like Davido or Rima. The Grammys recently debuted a new African music category, but critics say the development is behind the times for a genre that is taking over the world. NPR's Sydney Madden reports. At the 2024 Grammy Awards, Nigerian superstar Burna Boy made history as the first Afrobeats act to perform during the show. The singer graced the stage with R&B legend Brandy and rapper 21 Savage for his song, Sitting on Top of the World. It was a fitting song choice for the ceremony. Last year, Luminate Data reported that Afrobeats is the fastest growing genre being listened to in the U.S. And this year, the Recording Academy debuted a whole new category dedicated to music from the continent. Best African Music Performance. What's up? I'm Ira Thoth, the one and only Sapi girl, Celestial Theme. You know the vibe. 21-year-old singer Ira Starr is from Benin and Nigeria. She was one of the seven nominees in the inaugural category for her song, Rush. Rush is the type of song that signifies how African music is changing the American soundscape. 
Ferran Mamo, a staff writer at Billboard magazine, has been tracking this explosion over the past few years. But really, as a child of Ethiopian immigrants... African music has been part of my life basically since I was born. Mamo says even though Afrobeats artists have popped up on U.S. charts in recent years, it was mostly by collaborating with an established Western act. Think Drake's 2016 hit, One Dance, featuring Wizkid. That's why I need a one dance, got a my And even then, it was few and far between. According to Mamo, it was a 2020 pandemic, when the world felt more connected by way of our phones. And in 2021, when we finally started getting back outside, that she noticed African artists were impacting the U.S. in ways they never had before. It wasn't until, you know, I would say, like, when Essence was popping up, the song by Wizkid and Thames. Only you my body. You don't need no it was just so popular at all the different parties and clubs. You couldn't escape that summer without listening to that song. They were breaking through without crossing over. No need for changing languages or relying on a feature from an American. Fast forward to now and they're regulars on the Billboard charts. Some, like Burna Boy, have emerged as megastars. He's someone that I feel like his music translates well because... That has that familiar elements to it that can draw you in, but then the unfamiliar elements can excite you at the same time. And the same goes for Ira Star's Rush. It translated so well internationally, but at the same time, I wasn't singing in English. It's a very African song. Ira says her tracks work by blending American pop culture she grew up on with the sounds of where she's from. There's some elements you hear in the beat that are very like 80s pop, American pop too. And there's some elements you hear in the beat from the kick to the snares and everything. It's very Afrobeat. But when you hear the chords, the chords are very almost R&B-ish. South African newcomer Tyla, who ended up taking home the Grammy for her viral hit Water, fuses genres in a similar fashion. Mixing traditional African drum patterns with contemporary styles like R&B is the reason the music keeps on growing. And it's changing the perception of Africa along the way. I'm so glad I'm a part of the generation that showing the world what Africa is, you know, I feel like people have so much misconception about Africa, you know. I travel and people are like, oh, you have that in Africa? Like, you. For so long, people have, you know, negative images associated with Africa. They think about poverty. They think about, you know, government corruption. And so what really made me happy about this explosion of African music, especially Afrobeats, was that it was bringing a more positive image to the continent. But this spotlight, it shines on a fraction of what Africa has to offer. This year's Grammy nominees repped only three countries out of 54. I think that the continent is too vast to be limited to one category. One category to account for over a billion people is not nearly enough space for the diversity or the diaspora. Heron Mamo is encouraged by the progress, but wants even more. So not just Afrobeats, but Afropop, Afrofusion, Alta, I'm a Piano, Kizomba, 
Ethio jazz, you know, Ghanaian drill, you name it. So there's still a lot of genres that need to be recognized. I think having something like the African Grammys in a similar fashion to the Latin Grammys would be incredible. But with this Grammy nom as the battery in her back, Ira Starr says it's a new game now. I feel like the more we collaborate and the more we work together, we're going to bring out more different sounds. I feel like that's where Afrobeat is going, just collaborating with other African artists and making the genre bigger than any other genre in the world. Hello, with everybody for you. Sydney Madden, NPR News. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jatasa, providing bookkeeping, accounting, and CFO services exclusively to the nonprofit sector. Jatasa is committed to helping nonprofits do what they do best. More at JITASA.com. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. At uma.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Moonbox Productions, presenting the Manic Monologues, incredible stories told by brave individuals that challenge and inform your ideas about what it means to be touched by a mental health condition. They're moving and they are not ashamed. February 16th through the 25th at the Arrow Street Arts Performance Venue. Tickets at arrowstreetarts.org. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. One person is dead after a shooting at the end of today's parade in Kansas City celebrating the Chiefs' Super Bowl win. At least 14 people were injured. Two people with firearms are now in custody. Today's shooting is at least the 48th mass shooting in the country so far this year. It's Wednesday, February 14th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also, the Biden administration is looking into several of the deadliest airstrikes in Gaza to see if Israel is misusing U.S. weapons. We do seek to thoroughly assess reports of civilian harm by authorized recipients of U.S.-provided defense articles around the world. And we'll catch up with the University of Iowa basketball player Caitlin Clark, who's set to break the NCAA's all-time points record. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. What was to have been a joyous celebration of the Kansas City Chiefs' victory in the Super Bowl turned tragic today when gunfire erupted outside of Kansas City, Missouri Railway Station. Police say the shooting near a victory parade left one person dead, as many as 10 to 15 others wounded. Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas was among those in the crowd. I'm heartbroken. First of all, I'm praying for the victims and the families impacted. I start with them. Um, I'm incredibly upset, disappointed. I was there with my wife. I was there with my mother. Uh, We never would have thought 
that we, along with Chiefs players, along with fans, hundreds of thousands of people, would be forced to run for our safety today. Kansas City police say two people have been detained in connection with the shooting. Witnesses described hearing what they thought were fireworks before people began running. Former Congressman Tom Swazi of New York is headed back to Washington. The Democrat won a special election to replace ousted Republican George Santos in a race that featured several issues, including abortion rights and immigration. Beyond that, Democrats outspent the GOP candidate, Mozzie Pillup, and hammered her on personal financial issues. More from NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Republicans have been looking for any message to resonate in the suburbs. Education, crime, immigration. Nothing is quite stuck. That's not to say immigration isn't a salient issue for Republicans. It's been a hot-button one in New York, and polls show people trust Republicans more on immigration. But Swazi's win will give Democrats confidence that they can parry the immigration attacks. He was able to tack toward the middle and do what Democrats have done in swing district after swing district in the age of Trump, run as a moderate adult in the room willing to compromise. Domenico NPR News, New York. France is the third country in recent days to sanction Israeli settlers for violence against Palestinians following in the steps of the U.S. and the U.K. NPR's owner Beardsley reports France slapped travel bans against 28 individuals convicted of violence against Palestinians. Some question whether financial sanctions or travel bans against a few individuals can really make much of an impact. Nadav Weiman says the measures have woken Israelis up. It's groundbreaking. Weiman is head of Breaking the Silence, a group of former Israeli soldiers trying to call attention to their army's occupation of the West Bank and settler violence. He says it's been difficult. Then Biden signed the first sanctions. In Israel are talking about settler violence. It became a subject because now Israelis understand that we are not in, living in a bubble. They understand now that we have to do something. There is a price for that. France is urging the European Union to take similar measures against violent settlers. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Stocks regained some of their lost ground today following yesterday's big sell-off. The Dow was up 151 points, 38,424. The Nasdaq rose 203 points. The S&P 500 rose 47 points to close back above 5,000. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts officials say they're stepping up oversight of embattled steward health care. They say they're also bracing for the potential closure of any of the nine hospitals in the state owned by the for-profit company. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports. Stewart says financial challenges are jeopardizing its ability to provide services. Now, State Public Health Commissioner Robbie Goldstein says his department is expanding daily site visits at Stewart hospitals to make sure they're giving safe care to patients. At this time, we do not know what the future of Stewart hospitals will be. There will need to be some reorganization, reconfiguration, transition, and potential closures for Stewart hospitals and the health care they deliver. Any potential closures would add stress to the state's health care system at a time when patients already face long waits for care. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. Today, the Boston City Council set aside a vote on a resolution that calls for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Councillor Ben Weber introduced the measure, but he withdrew it this afternoon, saying it came to his attention that the language in it may cause more division. So out of respect to my council colleagues, and members of the Boston community, I withdraw this resolution today to have further conversations. This process has only reinforced my belief that dialogue is the only way forward for peace for Israelis and Palestinians and to show support for members of our community who are suffering. 
Efforts to pass a ceasefire resolution last October led to a tense debate in the council. It never got a vote. City councils in Cambridge, Somerville, and Medford have all approved ceasefire resolutions. The Steamship Authority says it's processed more than 23,000 transactions today for summertime trips for vehicles to and from Martha's Vineyard. That's about 1,000 fewer than it processed on the first day of sales each of the past two years. At its peak, shortly after 10 o'clock this morning, callers had to wait two hours, 15 minutes in the Steamship Authority's virtual waiting room before they could make their purchase. Boston Pop's schedule for its spring season at Symphony Hall is out. It will include appearances from Bradford Marsalis, Harry Connick Jr., and Sutton Foster. Conductor Keith Lockhart says there is new and dynamic programming on the schedule, including the Pop's first-ever Pride Night. That will include a performance by a drag queen and violinist known as Thorgy Thor. We want this program to, like all of our programs, to have musical integrity and to play to the widest possible audience. Because that's what we do at the Pops. We don't try to segment our audience. We try to bring people in to all sorts of listening experiences. And I think this artist is just incredible. Tickets go on sale February 27th. The season will open May 10th. In the forecast, clear skies overnight tonight. Still windy, down around the low 20s, but it should feel a lot colder than that. Tomorrow, partly sunny early, then clouds dominate in the afternoon, up around 38 degrees. A few flurries during the day tomorrow and early Friday, then sunshine pretty much all day long on Friday, close to 40 degrees. 29 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. In a few minutes, we'll look at Biden administration concerns that Israel is misusing American weapons in its war with Hamas. We will have the latest from the State Department. But first, we turn to the southern border, where there's been a historic increase in migrants attempting to enter the U.S. But there has been a new shift in the story. U.S. Customs and Border Protection is reporting that the number of undocumented migrants crossing into the U.S. dropped by 50 percent in January. Joining us now is NPR immigration correspondent Jasmine Garst. Hi there. Hi. So Jasmine, start if you can by just breaking down these numbers for us. Yeah, this is a significant drop. In December, authorities encountered over 249,000 migrants crossing the border without papers. That's a record number. In January, they encountered over 124,000. Within that, the Tucson sector of Arizona remains the busiest entry area for undocumented crossings, followed by Del Rio, Texas. I mean, a 50% drop sounds quite significant. Do you have any indication as to why that has been happening? Well, border crossings are very cyclical, and January tends to be a slow month. You know, bad weather. But also in the last few months, there's been so much talk about increasing border enforcement. Uh, Doris Meissner from the Migration Policy Institute says that also led to the dip. It's also a reflection of the debate that's been taking place in the United States, the sense that border enforcement is going to tighten. And so people tried to get in in much larger numbers in December. 
It wasn't just the debates, though. Meissner said that when the Biden administration restarted deportation flights back to Venezuela late last year, that sent a message. Um, and also since December, the Mexican National Guard has intensified its crackdown on migrants heading north. And Jasmine, what happens at the border, of course, reverberates in cities across the United States have New York, Denver, Chicago felt the impact of this decrease that we're talking about. Yes, definitely. I mean, New York City, which has received over 170,000 migrants in the last two years or so, has seen a plunge in migrants going into the city's care. And city officials say this is related to the decrease at the border. Um, they've said they welcome the reprieve. New York officials have been saying for a long time they're overwhelmed. OK, push us forward here. What comes next? Do we expect this dip to keep on going? Well, experts say this is going to go up again. That cycle is going to continue. I spoke to Adam Isaacson today from the Washington office on Latin America about that. People are fleeing really miserable conditions. There is really nothing we can do at the borderline or along the migrant route that is going to be more miserable than what people are already experiencing in the places they're fleeing. So this is something we keep hearing. If the forces that drive migration continue, so will migration. Right. And last week here in Washington, we saw the collapse of a border deal, which would have been a major doubling down on U.S. border enforcement. Have there been any suggested changes since that effort failed? No, quite the opposite. So this morning, the Washington Post reported that uh, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement has drafted plans to release thousands of immigrants and slash its capacity to hold detainees. NPR reached out to Homeland Security, who told us they need more resources and that, quote, without adequate funding, the department will have to reprogram or pull resources from other efforts. Jasmine, sounds like they're, they're talking about cuts. Is that something we can expect to see happen? No concrete cuts. And just to be clear, this isn't entirely new uh, for several administrations. Going back to George W. Bush, uh, this has been a practice. It's what critics call catch and release. That's NPR's Jasmine Garst. Thank you. Thank you. The Biden administration has been raising concerns with Israel about the high civilian death toll in Gaza. And now officials are looking into several of the deadliest airstrikes to see if Israel is misusing American weapons. But the administration has been reluctant to use its military aid as leverage. NPR's Michelle Kellerman is here to explain all this. Hey, Michelle. Hi there, Mary Louise. First of all, this is an official investigation. Who's running it? Yeah, well, the State Department has something called the Civilian Harm Incident Response Guidelines, which is kind of an internal reporting system for when U.S. weapons are used in high casualty attacks. Here's how State Department spokesman Matthew Miller describes it. That process is not intended to function as a rapid response mechanism. Rather, it is designed to systematically assess civilian harm incidents and develop appropriate policy responses to reduce the risk of such incidents occurring in the future and to drive partners to conduct military operations in accordance with international humanitarian law. Now, he wouldn't speak to specific incidents that are part of this formal review, but we do know that the State Department has been looking into the alleged use of white phosphorus in Lebanon and that it's been looking into some of the deadliest attacks in Gaza. The Wall Street Journal says that includes a 2,000-pound bomb dropped on a refugee camp last October there. 
So here's my question. If the State Department determines that Israel has, in fact, misused American weapons, are there consequences for Israel? Well, there could be aid cutoffs, but, you know, you heard Miller say that this is not a rapid response mechanism, so I would not expect the U.S. to come to any quick conclusions about that or cut off aid. And that worries Josh Paul. He quit the State Department last year because of the war in Gaza. He had worked on, you know, military aid packages, including those to Israel. Take a listen to how he responded to the news that the U.S. is looking into some of these incidents. The time for action is now. Uh, it is not in six months or a year from now when we are looking at a new tranche of requests from Israel. What we need is to ensure that U.S. weapons are not being used to kill thousands of civilians. And this is a question we already know the answer to. So I would say, you know, while it is good that the department is applying some of its tools to look at these questions, the answers are obvious and the time for action is now. And so far, Paul says the Biden administration has not put any real conditions on military aid to Israel. And why not? You know, the the U.S. is focused now on getting another pause in the fighting in exchange for the release of hostages held by Hamas. And the argument that I often hear over here at the State Department is that the pressure should be on Hamas, not on Israel right now. U.S. officials also often say that Hamas has been using civilians as human shields, and that's one of the reasons why there is such a high civilian death toll in Gaza. Now, diplomats do raise specific cases directly with Israeli authorities, and they do press Israelis to limit civilian casualties, but they don't seem to want to use aid as leverage with Israel at this point. Hmm. What about members of Congress? Because we have been hearing voices over on Capitol Hill uh, pushing back against the Biden administration on this. Well, certainly some Democrats have. Chris Van Hollen, who's from Maryland, says that Benjamin Netanyahu's government in Israel has mostly ignored U.S. calls to protect civilians in Gaza, and he does think it's time for the U.S. to do something. Um, The next test, Mary Louise, is what happens in Rafah near Gaza's border with Egypt. Israel says there are a few Hamas battalions there, but there's also more than a million Palestinian sheltering in Rafah. And the Biden administration has told Israel that it needs a real plan to protect civilians before any ground offensive. So far, U.S. officials say there's no credible plan. Uh, is NPR's Michelle Kellerman reporting from the State Department. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. Now, we have a follow-up to a story that we brought you yesterday. Residents of Portland, Maine are used to waking up on Valentine's Day to see their city covered in red hearts printed on white paper. It's a tradition that has taken place around town every Valentine's Day for more than 45 years. It's really become a symbol of Portland and of Maine and our community. We, I mean, I've seen people with tattoos of it now. It's really special to Portland. That is Sierra Farman. The man who started the tradition was her father, Kevin Farman. He became known as the Valentine's Day Bandit. Kevin and his collaborators worked anonymously, hanging hearts throughout the late night and early morning before Valentine's Day every year. The idea that there's someone anonymously doing these hearts over the years as a love letter to the, the city is really beautiful and 
It's all, it's all about generosity and spreading kindness and love and positivity. Here's the twist. Kevin died last April. His family and friends decided to reveal his identity as the bandit. This is the first Valentine's Day in Portland since his death. So did the bandit strike again? Sierra says as of this morning, the tradition lives on. There were white paper um, with red hearts all over town. Pretty much every window in, in town, um, all the businesses uh, had hearts on them. So who is the new bandit, you may be wondering? Sierra says the Valentine's Day bandit isn't just one person. Her father didn't work alone, and the tradition evolved over the years to become a community-wide effort. One thing has stayed the same, though, the bandit's anonymity. The beauty of it is that it is uh, anonymous, and it's not about recognition. If someone was saying, I'm spreading love around town, like, give me credit for it, that feeds into the commercialization that people hate about Valentine's Day. It shouldn't be about that. That's not what love is about. It's about uplifting people. That is Portland, Maine resident Sierra Farman remembering her father, Kevin Farman, also known as the Valentine's Day Bandit. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Business news is coming up in about 10 minutes on WBUR. On Wall Street, stocks picked up territory today. The Dow rose four-tenths of a percent. S&P gained nearly a full percent, and the Nasdaq grew by one and three-tenths of a percent. The transportation app Lyft has expanded its new platform in Boston. It's called Women Plus Connect. It lets female and non-binary riders match with female and non-binary drivers and vice versa. Kim Craven of the National Association of Women Law Enforcement Executives in Townsend, Mast, advised Lyft as it created the program. This just puts another level of safety and security onto the platform, which just enhances it for those that might be coming out of uh, work late at night or having to go to work. This enables them to add that layer of protection for themselves. Lyft launched the program in five other cities back in September. It expanded to 200 cities this week. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. Sure is windy out there right now. 29 degrees in the Boston area, feeling a lot colder because of the blustery wind. Tonight, high winds keep on coming. Clear skies overnight tonight, about 22 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, we should see some sunshine in the morning, but then clouds eventually drift in. A few flurries during the day. Temperatures should reach the upper 30s tomorrow. Then for Friday, still close to 40 degrees with mainly sunny skies. This is 90.9 WBUR. Again, 29 degrees in Boston. The time is 621. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Eight 
points. That is all Iowa Hawkeye Caitlin Clark needs to score tomorrow night against Michigan, and she will be the new women's NCAA all-time scoring leader. Her success is leading to record crowds and ratings for women's basketball. It's dubbed the Caitlin Clark effect. Our co-host Scott Detrow checked out the phenomenon in person recently when Iowa visited the University of Maryland. Sally McGovern and Karen Sotes have traveled from Pennsylvania and paid a lot of money to see Caitlin Clark in person. We got them for off a student. They were $9 seats and I think we paid $2.50 a piece. We didn't care. We didn't care. We didn't care. And we got a steal. All right. Rock on. Right. Come on in. Do it again. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, it's before game time and the arena here in Maryland is already packed. We are standing here courtside watching Caitlin Clark and her teammates warm up. She just drained a three from the corner in, in warm-ups. Walking into the arena, and this felt to me like a professional sports playoff game. You had parking lots full, you had people directing traffic, you had people trying to scalp tickets outside. As we walk around before tip-off, we see three women wearing matching hats. It's Caitlin Clark. It's just Caitlin Clark. It's really why we're here. <laughs> We can't tell you exactly what they read. The FCC would get annoyed. Something to the effect of Caitlin Leaping Clark. So we're all from New York, Philly, and Maryland, and so we decided last year, literally when they made it deep into the playoffs, that we were going to come and see them play. Megan McDonald and her college lacrosse teammates, Karen and Kristen, got their tickets early enough, they say with self-satisfaction, that they avoided all the scalper prices. Just think about the fact that it's like, like, like nearly... $1,500 for tickets yeah, for tonight. Absolutely. Yeah. Give it to the girls. 1500 Yeah, Meg, it's the same as the EFC yeah, championship game right last now. weekend. No, absolutely. The women are getting the, the recognition they deserve. As with many others across the country, Clark first hit their radar during last year's NCAA tournament run, when she led her team to the finals but lost. This is their first time seeing her in person. First so what, what are you most excited to see? Uh, like, I want to see her show. shoot from the logo. I would love like a 50-plus point show. game. Uh, break some records. I know she's like a thousand points or hundred yeah. points off the record. So whether it's this game or the next game, probably the next game. Uh, love to see break that record. The game gets underway, and on the very first play, Clark hits a three-point. It's Maryland though who establishes an early lead, and that energizes the Maryland fans who are trying to drown out all the Iowa and Clark supporters invading their home arena. Clark's the ball down the court. You just hear her getting booed. Oh, my God. I think that counts as a logo shot. That was what, 10, 10 feet? That's 5, 10 feet past the line. That's, that's like, that's the 8 to 10 feet out. Yeah, yeah that was a deep, deep three-point shot. Her third three-pointer of the first quarter. Clark is facing the same dynamics that superstars often do when they play in the world. Fans are here to see her. Maryland fans are also making a point to boo her. Every time she sets up for a shot in front of the Maryland student section, crowd taunts her. I ask whether all of this affects her approach or her play. Honestly, like not really. I mean, I take it in everywhere I go, and I think I'm just very grateful. And everywhere she goes, it's sellout after sellout, with all eyes on Clark. It is what it is. It's basketball. You know, one game is not going to make or break our season. And I just find a calming presence and like being around my teammates and um, having fun playing this game. And, Kristen you know, Meyer was Clark's high school coach. 
Dolan Catholic in West Des Moines. She says ever since she first saw Clark play as a middle schooler, she knew Clark was special. Looking for an example, she starts talking about practice. We had to bring in different high school guys who were a little bit stronger, a little bit taller, and who could guard her more. You know, she'd score a basket, talk a little trash, or they'd get a stop and they'd talk a little trash, all in fun. Clark's competitiveness made headlines last year. She and LSU star Angel Reese went back and forth in the NCAA championship, taunting each other. Even with that, longtime WNBA star Maya Moore says she is impressed by Clark's mindset amid all of the hype and attention. You know, it's not an individual sport where she is individually good, but she's doing all this on a team, which is, I think, even harder to do, right? To go out and find your place within a group while also becoming the best that you can be. The courtside now start of the third quarter. Iowa started off with the ball, and again, they're up 52 to 38. Caitlin Clark has scored a little less than half of the team's points so far, and I guess she's gotten about a quarter of the way at this point toward that all-time record. She was a little more than 100 points short, 23 points already in this game. Clark's scoring pace slows down a bit in the second half, and Maryland claws its way back into the game, even taking the lead at a few points. Then, Clark starts to hit a groove again. She starts making more three-pointers, and Maryland comes out deep to guard her more closely. So. Clark starts finding her teammates with her other signature play. Accurate long-range passes, the kind you usually see from football quarterbacks. She is such a great passer that she's going to find, you know, that teammate for an easy look, you know, if you if you gear on her too much. But then if you don't, she's going to score. Jackie Stiles knows basketball. She's in the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. Playing for Southwest Missouri State University in the late 90s and early 2000s, she broke the all-time women's scoring record and held it for nearly two decades. She's been watching closely this season. Uh, man, I have just enjoyed Kaylin Clark's journey. As Clark has marched toward the record, Styles has thought back on all of the pressure she faced as she tried to break it years ago. Styles has also reflected on how much more power and self-determination college athletes have now that the NCAA allows them to get a piece of the millions of dollars that college sports generate. I was the fourth pick in the WNBA draft, and at that time, we went to a pay scale, and the top four got the highest salary, which was 55000 You know, So you know, she's more likely going to make more as a college athlete. These new dynamics will leave Clark with an interesting choice after this season. She can go to the WNBA, where she'd almost certainly be the number one draft pick, or due to extended eligibility dating back to the lost COVID season, she could play another year at Iowa and maybe earn more money in college than she could as a pro. Mary Jo Kane, a professor at the University of Minnesota, rattles off all of the major companies who already have deals with Clark. Gatorade and Nike, obviously, in the sports world. But beyond that, H&R Block, Buick, Goldman Sachs. And she is the first ever college athlete, male or female, to sign with the sports marketing behemoth State Farm. So um, Caitlinomics has just been, again, a tsunami of exposure. Against Maryland, Clark and Iowa pull away in the fourth quarter and end up with what looks, on the scoreboard at least, like an easy win. Late in the night, Iowa fans huddle in the cold in the parking lot outside the arena, hoping for a glimpse of Clark as she and the Hawkeyes leave on the bus. Walking through the crowd, I see little kids, girls and boys, pressed against the barrier, holding signs with Clark's name on it cheering Caitlin, Caitlin, 
These crowds will be watching as Clark's career continues into the upcoming NCAA tournament and whatever comes next. Scott Detrow, NPR News, College Park, Maryland. You're listening to All Things Considered. And this is 90.9 WBUR. The Boston Celtics host the Brooklyn Nets tonight at 7.30 at the Garden. Boston's professional women's hockey team also plays at home tonight. They take on Toronto at the Sangha Center in Lowell. And Red Sox pitchers and catchers had their first spring training workout today in Fort Myers, Florida. WBUR supporters include Feldman Geospatial, presenting live jazz weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room, Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com slash Boston and Groton Hill Music Center presenting Nickel Creek live March 15th. Dining and free parking less than an hour from Boston. grottonhill.org slash tickets.